Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week, I examine Stephen King's 1990s entry in short stories, 1993's Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Each decade, King releases a short story collection, the first being 1978's Night Shift, followed by 1985's Skeleton Crew. Later, he'll continue this tradition with 2002's Everything's Eventual, 2008's Just After Sunset, and this November, King will release his sixth short story collection, The Bazaar of Bad Dreams, which I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I probably will review upon publication. Let's just see how many reviews I'm able to get under my belt until then. I'm kind of on a roll. I want to get through as many as possible, so I give myself a long uh, lead time with a lot of episodes in the can. So let's see. Let's see what happens. Anyway, back to Nightmares and Dreamscapes. This collection is a touchstone for me because this was the first, the first Stephen King publication that was published after I had become a constant reader. I remember seeing the magazine advertisements for it with the image that I still consider to be Stephen King's best cover. If you haven't seen it, the original hardcover publication has a scarecrow wearing a Castle Rock Rockets baseball uniform staked into the middle of a tree-lined road. The sun is going down over the horizon and the moon is rising into the sky. It's a great cover. I'll admit, I was disappointed when I first heard that Nightmares and Dreamscapes was going to be a short story collection. I'd gotten my hopes up that it would be a single tale, a soon-to-be classic King novel. I had read Skeleton Crew, I had read Night Shift before the publication of Nightmares and Dreamscapes, and had enjoyed them just fine, but I preferred the novels to the short stories. Regardless, it was a new Stephen King publication, and that was a new experience for me. So Nightmares and Dreamscapes will always be, no matter what happens and no matter how I feel about how I felt about it at the time, it will always be my first new Stephen King publication for me. And I was looking forward to revisiting the stories within for this podcast because even though, like I said, I preferred the novels to the short stories, the short stories within this collection are some of my favorites. The Night Flyer, Rainy Day Season, The End of the Whole Mess, Popsy, You Know They've Got a Hell of a Band, Sorry, Right Number, Crouch End, and the list goes on. These are all great stories, and there's even more. So just so you know, next week I will be reviewing the film adaptation of The Night Flyer, starring Lloyd Henry himself, Miguel Ferrar. So if you've listened to my reviews of The Night Shift, and if you've listened to the review that I did of The Graveyard Shift, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> Night Shift and um, Skeleton Crew, you'll know that you'll know how this works. I won't review every story in this collection. I'll just review a handful of what I think are the best, the ones listed above. By the nature of the short stories, I'm not going to go into as much detail as I typically do during the reviews of the novels, so feel free to fill in the blanks that I leave by sending in your thoughts and your favorite stories to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. I've had a lot of people write in about, at some point, me doing um, a bonus episode on all the stories that I haven't gotten a chance to, to talk about, the ones that I left out of my Night Shift review, of my Skeleton Crew review, and I assume they'll want to hear the the um, the thoughts on the, not, the, the short stories that I leave out of, of Nightmares and Dreamscapes review. So I, I can't promise anything. I don't know what the future holds, but... 
I've also had people write in giving me their thoughts on the stories that I did not talk about. So please feel free to do that because, you know, as you know, I will share them on air. So it's not just my voice and our thoughts collectively will make up the, the, the reviews of the, the short stories collection. So feel free to, to let me know what you think your favorite short stories are within Night Shift within Skeleton Grew and specifically here with, with Nightmares and Dreamscapes. So for me, this marks the beginning of a phase of Stephen King's career that is very personal for me. You know, like I said, this was the first new Stephen King publication. So this is the first of a number of books that I got to look forward to going out and buying. You know, and from a more objective standpoint, I believe that this phase is also King operating at full imagination. From here on out, it's like King takes the brakes off the car and cackles as he flies down the hill. In the next few years, he's going to publish Insomnia, Rose Matter, Desperation, The Regulars on the same day of the same year that took place, um, that saw the publication of The Green Mile, which he published a chapter a month, and then Wizarding Glass, which is pure eye candy. Now, I don't mention Bag of Bones because I think that's the precursor to Stephen King's next phase, which will be followed up with Hearts in Atlantis and um, will begin in full with Lisey's story. And that phase is placing the focus on introspection and it comes a he takes a more existentialist approach, I would say. So Bag of Bones, for instance, focuses on life after death of a loved one and is all about recovering and finding your feet again. You know, the ghost subplot there is just that. It's a subplot. You know, it's the subtext. It's not the text itself. Duma Key is about second chances starting over. The Floridian mystery that's there always plays second fiddle to the main character's journey. Lisi's story is never really about the magic pool of creativity. It's always what about um, Lisi is dealing with and the death of her husband. So with that phase... Gone are the days where the hook is the primary factor, the telepathic girl, the haunted hotel, the possessed car, a rabid dog, a pet cemetery, the list goes on. But I'll get to that phase later. First, I just want to celebrate the era of pure imagination with the release of Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And I'm currently rereading Insomnia right now, and I will talk a lot more about this particular phase during that Insomnia review. Before I launch into any stories... I will once again examine the introduction to this piece. If you listen to my review of Night Shift, you know that King's introduction to the collection is just as important, if not more important, than the stories themselves. In it, he adopts the persona of a monster movie host or Rod Serling or the Crypt Keeper. You know, that boogeyman storyteller presenting a series of terrifying tales to terrorize your sleep. By the time he writes Skeleton Crew a decade later, his introduction reveals an author much more comfortable with his voice and his audience with whom he has since formed a relationship. By the time he publishes Nightmares and Dreamscapes, his third short story collection, it's just about 20 years since the publication of Carrie, and since then he has long established his legacy as the master of horror. Simply put, he doesn't need to try. He only needs to be himself. And because he has spent so much time with us, he can confide in us, which is what he does by looking back into the past, ruminating on imagination and inspiration. And he sums it up with this incredible passage on belief, 
which you can find in the hardcover edition on the bottom of page three, top of page four. And what he's doing is he's describing being a child and reading the paperback compilations of Ripley's Believe It or Not. So he writes, that series of paperbacks was, to me at least, the world's most wonderful sideshow, one I could carry around in my back pocket and curl up with on a rainy weekend afternoon when there were no baseball games and everyone was tired of Monopoly. Were all of Ripley's fabulous curiosities and human monsters real? In the context, that hardly seems relevant. They were real to me, and that probably is during the years from 6 to 11, crucial years in which the human imagination is largely formed. They were very real to me. I believe them just as I believed you could derail a freight train with a dime, or the drippy goop in the center of a golf ball would eat the hand right off your arm if you were careless and got some of it on you. It was in Ripley's Believe It or Not that I first began to see how fine the line between the fabulous and the humdrum could sometimes be, and to understand that the juxtaposition of the two did as much to illuminate the ordinary aspects of life as it did to illuminate its occasional weird outbreaks. Remember, it's belief we're talking about here, and belief is the cradle of myth. What about reality, you ask? Well, as far as I'm concerned, reality can go take a flying F at a rolling donut. I've never held much of a brief for reality, at least in my written work. All too often is to the imagination what ash stakes are to vampires. I think that myth and imagination are, in fact, nearly interchangeable concepts, and that belief is the wellspring of both. Belief in what? I don't think it matters very much, to tell you the truth, one god or many, or that a dime can derail a freight train. You know, the remainder of the introduction expands this thought, and we get a very intimate moment with the author who opens up about his doubt in himself and of the criticisms lobs against him. And through these criticisms and self-doubt, he continues to write because of his belief in the powers of stories themselves, which can be found on page 6. I don't talk about this much because it embarrasses me and it sounds pompous, but I still see stories as a great thing, something which not only enhances lives but actually saves them. Nor am I speaking metaphorically. Good writing, good stories, are the imagination's firing pin, and the purpose of imagination, I believe, is to offer us solace and shelter from situations and life passages which would, be otherwise, which would otherwise prove unendurable. I can only speak from my own experience, of course, but for me, the imagination which so often kept me awake in terror as a child has seen me through some terrible bouts of stark raving reality as an adult. If the stories which have resulted from that imagination have done the same for some of the people who've read them, then I am perfectly happy and perfectly satisfied. Feelings which cannot, so far as I know, be purchased with rich movie deals or multi-million dollar book contracts. So here you have it. Like I said earlier, this begins a phase of incredible imagination on display because of his belief in the power of storytelling. So let's get to it. First up is the end of the whole mess. Before I get into my review, I'll read the Wikipedia summary. This story, narrated by Howard Fornoy, is a form of a personal journal. It recounts the life of his genius younger brother, Robert. Bobby, a child prodigy, whose adult interest led him to study a, a variety of scientific disciplines, discovered a chemical that reduces the aggressive tendencies of humans and other organisms. While doing a sociological research in Texas, Bobby used crime statistics to create a sort of topographic map which displayed a geographical pattern of violent crime. 
Examining the map, Robert noted diminishing levels of crime centered around the town of La Plata. When he arrives to investigate, he finds that the town has never had any violent crime. Bobby is ultimately able to determine that the cause of the non-aggression is the presence of a chemical unique to the town's water supply, a phenomenon that is mentioned in but has nothing to do with the causations of King's earlier novel, It. Uh, that That's a weak connection um, to whoever wrote the, the Wikipedia summary. Because, okay, so I'm stopping the Wikipedia uh, review right now, or the, the, the Wikipedia read right now, because I need to talk a little bit about what is mentioned here with It. So, who, who wrote the Wikipedia summary mentions It because saying something that the the result of what happens in the end of the whole mess is a result of what is placed in the water supply and they're saying that the same thing happened in it and so what i assume that the wikipedia reviewer is saying here is that dairy was an awful place because something was in the water no if i recall one character is dwelling on what makes dairy so awful and they just say that oh it must be something in the water but that's something that that's a phrase that's something that we all say when something happens collectively we we all say oh there must be something in the water the reasons behind why dairy is dairy has nothing to do with the water it has to do it's it's not a physical change it's not a, a physical malaise it's a spiritual one caused by the toxic nature of the the it Pennywise, the clown that has existed in that town since primordial times. So I just really needed to to um, clarify that. Going back to the Wikipedia summary. Even minimal exposure to the chemical will calm down an angry person or an animal, and Bobby has been able to isolate the chemical and reduce it to concentrated form. At a time of international chaos suggestive of an approaching nuclear war, Bobby and Howard, with the aid of a volcano in Borneo that is set to erupt and blow millions of tons of ash into the atmosphere, disperse a large quantity of this substance throughout the world in hope of preventing a catastrophe. Indeed, the effects are quick and expected, a massive decrease in hostilities around the globe. Several months later, it is discovered that, to the Fornoy's horror, there was another constant about La Plata that was not studied until after the substance was released. It does eliminate aggression and increases calm, but it does the job too well. It builds up out of control in a subject system, ultimately giving them symptoms resembling dementia or Alzheimer's disease, and eventually resulting in death. Howard's journey journal entries after this point begin to include increasing amounts of grammar, spelling, and other mistakes, eventually devolving into incoherence as Howard succumbs to the effects of the chemical, it is implied that the human race will also eventually die out as adults start to forget how to care for newborn children. Analysis. It is such a well-written story that grabs you immediately. So many mysterious question marks pop up off the page to hook you. You know, what is this epic story? Who is telling it? What did he inject himself with? Why does he have only 45 minutes to tell the story? On page 70 of the hardcover edition, King discusses the literary prowess that Bobby possessed, focusing on the grammar and syntax of his composition, which works to illustrate Bobby's growth, but within the function of reading the story reminds the audience that intelligence is conveyed through a firm grasp of grammar, so that when the end comes and we ha and all we have are the simple and fragmented sentence of our writer, we remember this part distinctly. 
for a story about the end of the world, it's fun. The story of Bobby's airplane invention is funny and whimsical, and I kept picturing Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. The image of an eight-year-old boy flying above a park on his invention is such a magical image. As is adult Bobby's bee and wasp experiment in Howie's house. It's a great way to illustrate the effects of the calmative. Bobby, through Howie's transcript, tells the tale of peaceful La Plata and foreshadows the end of the world by insinuating that the friendly sheriff was probably beginning to suffer from Alzheimer's. Now this is crazy. This story is crazy. The comment of water is transported to a volcano. That's this type of story. King appears to be having a blast. I hope that he did, because I'm having a blast rereading it. There's a shift in the narrative and in style on page 91 when Howie admits that their plan backfired, and immediately after we begin to witness the deterioration of his writing when he begins to write in fragments and begins leaving out pronouns. Spelling begins to slip, and his thoughts become jumbled. He's sidetracked easily, and the text becomes very difficult to read. The end of the whole mess comes very, very fast. So now we have Stephen Kingisms, our tricks and traits and tropes that can be found within this particular short story. We have syntax mirroring the character's downward spiral, as seen before in Skeleton Crew's Survivor Type. Uh, the End of the World itself, this is not Stephen King's first time on this particular merry-go-round, which we can see again in The Stand and Cell. Number three is the writer as protagonist. It's not the first time that we have seen the our point of view character be a writer, seen before in Ben Mears, in Bill Denbro, uh, and many, many others. And children having headaches. Bobby has headaches. Uh, so did Thad Beaumont, another writer as protagonist, uh, main character of The Dark Half. So this leads me to our next story that we're going to be talking about, which is The Night Flyer. So I will read the Wikipedia summary. The story centers on Richard Dees, a deeply cynical reporter from a trashy supermarket tabloid called The Inside View. Dees' current subject of investigation is the Night Flyer, an apparent serial killer who travels between small airports in a Cessna Skymaster, gruesomely, gruesomely killing people in a way that leads Dees to think that the man is a lunatic who believes himself to be a vampire. After only a few days of interviewing witnesses and following the killer's trail in his own Cessna, Dees overtakes the night flyer during a violent thunderstorm at Wilmington International Airport and quickly learns that he is badly mistaken about his would-be quarry. It is indeed a vampire that is doing the killings. After Dee watches the night flyer casually empty the bloody contents of his bladder into an airport urinal, as much of this act as he can see reflected in a mirror, the creature warns off his would-be biographer, destroying his photographic evidence, and leaves the mortally shaken reporter amidst a scene of carnage to be arrested by the police. Analysis. Okay, guys. Okay. Um, not to dwell on the lurid here, but how awesome is the visual of Dee's watching the night flyer urinate? Who thinks like that? To not see the urinator but only the urine itself because vampires don't cast reflections? That's incredible. As is the simple concept of this story. First, the idea that a vampire is flying around plays the idea of the old concept of the vampire being able to transform into a bat and having the plane be, well, not the, the villain of the piece, but a haunting vehicle is King again playing with everyday you know, the, the everyday objects that we'll see, turning it into the horrific as seen before with similarly haunted vehicles in Christine and trucks. Now, I, I'm going to sound like a dead horse in this episode, but 
the story is so much fun. Count Dracula with a pilot's license. That is how King summarizes the concept of this story, and it's such a great hook. The fact that the Night Flyer is having fun makes the story even more fun. I mean, it's one thing for an author to name his vampire character Dwight Renfield. It's another thing to have the vampire character name himself Dwight Renfield. It shows us that this villain isn't taking himself too seriously here. And the first time we meet the, the Night Flyer himself, he's urinating. So that's our green light to smile despite the horrors that are being committed to the characters. So we have a story in which the author is clearly having a good time writing a vampire yarn. And what's a vampire yarn without thunder and lightning? Except rather than so except rather than lightning cracking the night sky behind a looming castle, a lightning bolt strikes the small town airport, plunging Dee's world into darkness and setting the stage for the terrifying showdown between the two bloodsuckers. And that's the joy of this story. We have a literal bloodsucker and a figurative one, because what is Dee's but a parasite himself? When Dees hits the ground, he hears the slaughter occurring within the airport and rushes inside. But Dees is not a hero and has no intention of saving anyone, but instead simply wants to get the pictures that are going to make him famous. Aside from the hook, the greatest strength is its miserable main character, Inside View veteran reporter Richard Dees. Like I said before in my review of The Dark Half and Needful Things, I think that King missed an opportunity to write a series of episodic novels in which Alan Pangborn explores supernatural mysteries in his small town of Castle Rock. Similarly, I think that King missed an opportunity to write a series of episodic novels in which a sleazy tabloid reporter, Richard Dees, seeks out the weird and oftentimes dangerous news stories that lead him into supernatural occurrences. And what we see of Dees in this story shows that this is a character I would love to follow. His self-preservation, quick thinking, and miserable attitude are perfect qualities for an anti-hero to root for. Just look at the scene in which he's descending in his plane and narrowly misses getting hit by another plane because of a power outage below. Who would have thought to cut his arm and his forehead with a knife just so he could blackmail the dispatcher into landing? Deez, that's who. King provides a wonderful glimpse into the apathetic mind of Deez on page 1... 34. As a kid, he had believed these emotions didn't really exist at all. So, he, so basically good-humored and warm uh, are the, the feelings that he's talking about. As a kid, he believed that these emotions didn't really exist at all. They were just a masquerade, a social convention. Later on, he decided he had been wrong about that. Most of what he thought of as Reader's Digest emotions were real, at least for most people. Perhaps even love, the fabled big enchilada was real. That he himself could not feel these emotions was undoubtedly a shame, but hardly the end of the world. I mean, that's... Dee's is something else. Um, I mean, he's awful. He's an awful, awful person, but I just love reading about him. So, I mean, there were people, after all, with cancer and AIDS, King's rights, and the memory spans of brain-damaged parakeets. When you looked at it that way, you quickly realized that being deprived of a few huggy-kiss emotions was fairly small beans. The important thing was that if you could manage to stretch the muscles of your face in the right directions every now and then, you were fine. It didn't hurt, and it was easy. If you could remember to zip up your fly after you took a leak, you could remember to smile and look warm when it was expected of you. And an understanding smile he had discovered over the years was the world's best interview tool. Once in a while, inside of... 
Once in a while, a voice inside him asked what his own inside view was, but Dees didn't want an inside view. He only wanted to write and take photographs. So, Stephen Kingisms. Vampires. King first explored vampires with Salem's Lot and followed up with one more for the road. We will see vampires again immediately when we finish the Night Flyer with Popsy, and later in the pages of the Dark Tower, where we meet the original vampires. And literary shout-outs. King wears his literary inspirations on his sleeve. I never really discuss this much in my reviews. I mean, I do every now and then with the big ones, J.R.L. Tolkien, Lovecraft, Bradbury. But he's not about he's not above giving shout-outs to contemporary peers, as he does here with Anne Rice, when he states that one of the Night Flyer's victims was reading the Vampire Lestat. And now we have our Easter eggs, uh, which are our cameos and shout-outs to other Stephen King works. The first is, of course, Richard Dees and Inside View. Um, for those of you who don't know, Richard Dees was a very, very minor character that first appeared in The Dead Zone when Johnny Smith first gets his uh, psychic abilities. Richard Dees is there from Inside View to report on it. And to Popsy, it's interesting that the publication sees two vampire stories inserted back to back. So the question is, is Popsy the Night Flyer? It's never really stated one way or another, but King says that it could be true. Which brings us to Popsy. Sheridan, a gambling addict, has taken to abducting children for a man known as Mr. Wizard in order to pay off his enormous debts to a mobster who has threatened Sheridan with grievous bodily harm. Wizard has told Sheridan only that the children go on a boat ride implicitly for human trafficking overseas, and Sheridan wants no further information. While lurking in a mall parking lot in his modified van, Sheridan spots his newest probable target of opportunity, a child standing near the entrance, obviously separated from his parents and distressed. Sheridan approaches him, convincing him that he has seen the child's popsy, as the boy calls him. After luring him into the van, Sheridan handcuffs him and drives off to make his delivery. On his way to the drop-off point, the boy shows unusual strength, biting the main character hard enough to leave two deep marks on his hand, as well as nearly ripping out the steel bar he is handcuffed to. In addition to these demonstrations of strength, the boy makes odd comments about his popsy, such as his ability to find him and his ability to fly. By the time they are nearing their destination, night has fallen, and Sheridan scenes, sees an odd shape swoop by. The boy claims that this is his popsy, and although Sheridan doesn't immediately believe it, he becomes nervous. Moments later, a wing covers the windshield and the door is ripped off, revealing a horrific bat-like creature which slits Sheridan's throat and feeds the blood to the child. This is the second vampire story in a row where the vampire isn't the worst character in the story. First, we had the Night Flyer who, despite murdering people, still didn't seem as heinous as Richard Dees, and here we have Popsy who saves the day when his grandson is abducted from the villainous Sheridan. Like many of King's short stories, it functions like an EC Comics tale. After the immediate abduction, the mysteries keep building, the, the twists keep turning. Why is this boy so strong? Such sharp teeth. Who is his popsy, and what does he mean that he can fly? Basically, this, is, this story is one of King's great what-ifs. What if Dracula had a grandson, and that grandson was abducted? Again, there's humor here, just as there had been in Nightflyer, because Popsy, our Dracula analog, explains that they were in the mall in the first place because he was buying Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle action figures for the boy. Easter eggs. 
As stated in the Night Flyer review, it's possible that Popsy is the Night Flyer himself. And Inside View is also an Easter egg. King references Inside View, a magazine whose reporter Richard Dees starred in the other vampiric tale in his collection, Night Flyer. Up next is It Grows On You. The story recounts the bizarre and inexplicable events that have taken place in the notorious house in the town of Castle Rock. The house seems to take on a life of its own as new wings are added, growing in a way that seems proportionate to the awful events that have occurred there. The new wings added seem to be connected to the deaths of men who, as boys, were molested by the house owner's wife. The story also serves somewhat as an epilogue to needful things, as stated by Stephen King himself. Ladies and gentlemen, we return once again to Castle Rock last seen in Needful Things, as most of its downtown was, as Stephen King's endings tend to be, on fire. Castle Rock hasn't just been the setting of some of his most famous novels, he's also visited it in his short stories as well, including Mrs. Todd's Shortcut and Grandma. So it makes perfect sense for him to include a little tale of his most famous town, and he gives us a patent. Uh, Stephen King's small town description to kick it off on page 161. New England autumn and the thin soil now shows in patches through the ragweed and goldenrod, waiting for snow still four weeks distant. The culverts are clogged with leaves, the sky has gone in perpetual gray, and corn stalks stand in leaning rows like soldiers who have found some fantastic way to die on their feet. Pumpkins sagging inward now with soft rot are piled against sheds smelling like the breath of old women there is no heat and no cold at this time of year only pallid air which is never still beating through the bare fields under white skies where birds fly south in chevron shapes that wind blows dust from the soft shoulders of back roads and dancing dervishes parts the played out fields as a comb parts hair and sniffs its way into junked cards junk cars up on blocks in backyards and that's really all I have to say about this story. It's not great. In fact, it's pretty bad. Uh, nothing happens, and the concepts that King explores here, which I'll get to in the next 15 seconds or so, um, have been explored better in better stories. The only reason I include this story, really, was because it was a Castle Rock story, which gives us the dying breath of the body that had been fatally wounded in Needful Things. So, Stephen Kingisms. First, we have the evil house. Here it's the Newell House, before we have seen it with the Marston House, the Overlook, the house on Nybolt Street, the Dutch Hill House in, in uh, the Wastelands. Uh, and the second Stephen Kingism is the owner hanging himself in the Evil House, which was the death of the Marston guy, from, the Marston guy, the, the owner of the Marston House from Salem's Lot. And now we have our Easter eggs. First being Castle Rock. Castle Rock is probably Stephen King's most famous small town, which was the setting for Cujo, for the Dead Zone, which was seen in um, the Dark Half, in Needful Things. So, I mean, we this is a, a town that we have spent a significant amount of time in. And specifically within uh, the town, I mean, we have Clutterbuck, who is Andy's grandfather. The Clutterbuck that's here is John Clutterbuck. So very specifically, we are interacting with members of a family that we are connected to. And also another Easter egg is Chamberlain. Chamberlain is mentioned, and Chamberlain is the town where Carrie Whitehead lived. 
And so now we uh, have, you know they've got a hell of a band. So I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary to this one. Clark and Mary Willingham are a couple traveling through Oregon. They almost hit a truck but quickly recover. Clark is being transferred out of state, so they opt to take a more scenic route. The two plan to visit Tokati Falls, and Clark insists on taking a road through the deep forest. Mary protests, fearful of becoming lost in the remote wilderness, but Clark is adamant. Mary reluctantly gives in and takes a nap. While Mary has a nightmare, Clark becomes increasingly lost on a bad stretch of road, while being unwilling to admit to himself that he's lost. When Mary wakes and confronts him, he finally admits that he's given up hope of finding Tokity Falls and that, furthermore, he had, been, he had the opportunity to turn around and rejected it. Exasperated yet hesitant to push the issue, Mary agrees to keep going forward in the hopes of reaching a point where they can safely turn around since the road has become too narrow. They abruptly come upon a sign announcing, Welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, Oregon. The road becomes wider and paved, giving them another chance to turn around. Again, Clark refuses, arguing that it would be easier and safer to do so inside the town itself. They discover Rock and Roll Heaven is a small town with a, with a 50s theme, described as looking identical to a Norman Rockwell painting. Mary feels worried about the too-perfect town, citing the short stories of Ray Bradbury and Hansel and Gretel, as well as The Twilight Zone. Clark is irritated at Mary's fear, and the two argue. Clark eventually wears Mary down, and the two venture into town. To Mary's horror, he insists on entering a local diner. Afraid of being left alone, she follows. Inside the diner, they see several people and are convinced that the people are actually dead musicians, not imposters. After a waitress attempts to warn them off, Clark slips out, but Mary is confronted by two dead musicians. At first cordial and friendly, one begins to bleed from his eyes, and another vomits hundreds of maggots, revealing that they've simply been playing with her. Clark and Mary flee and drive frantically through the town, chased by dead music legends. They run one over who gets up as if nothing had happened. As they drive, Mary notices other citizens of rock and roll heaven, all of whom look exhausted and apathetic. She realizes that these are the true inhabitants, lured in and trapped in the town. Mary and Clark think they have escaped, but are easily captured in the outskirts of town after hitting a psychedelic bus. A police car bearing the mayor, a deceased Elvis Presley, uh, and the chief of police pulls up. The musicians later ominously reveal that they couldn't have escaped, as the road out is surrounded by swamp, quicksand, bears, and other things. As the sun begins to set over rock and roll heaven, Mary and Clark join the ranks of the other imprisoned souls in the park, where the concert is prepared. Mary looks at the other exhausted townsfolk and chooses to sit next to the waitress from the diner. The young woman has the glazed look of one who is stoned and talks with the couple. She tells them that her name is Sissy and reveals that one of her fingers was cut off by Frankie Lyman as punishment for assisting the pair. She also explains that while the concert must end at midnight, time is different in rock and roll heaven. The songs sometimes go on for years. The disc jockey Alan Freed takes the stage and begins to announce an endless series of legendary rock stars. Mary voices her worst fear when she asks Sissy her age. She is 23 and has been that way for seven years. One is left to wonder if they were actually killed by the truck in the beginning. Mary realizes that, sorry, Mary realizes that these are the people who get lost in the woods. 
as Freed continues to scream the names of musicians. He finally shouts, rock and roll will never die, to which Mary thinks the last line of the story, that's what I'm afraid of. That's exactly what I'm afraid of. So analysis, this one stuck with me. As Stephen King's short stories go, this might be my favorite. You know, I know that I've said that about the raft and the jaunt, but I distinctly remember the dawning horror of this particular help wash over me. It was a growing dread rather than an outright shock, first seeing these legendary rock stars and then realizing that you'll never be able to escape. I've always been afraid of being trapped. I had a vision when I was a kid of being locked in a restaurant bathroom, having time pass, sure that my parents would come looking for me only for more time to pass without anyone coming or going and then more and more time. Imagine being stuck in a restaurant bathroom for all eternity. It's an awful idea and not necessarily relevant to the story, but relevant enough for me to make this connection. Maybe that's why the first act of Old Boy affected me so much. Now, if you haven't seen Old Boy, the original, not the Spike Lee remake, please see it. It's a mind trip. It begins with a man finding himself imprisoned in a small apartment that consists of a bedroom and a bathroom for something like 15 years. It's a horrifying concept, and the horror comes from, and the horror that comes from it is the same horror that I feel when I read stories like, you know they've got a hell of a band. It's a great concept, honestly. Very imaginative, very simple. Two concepts smooshed together into a weird, surreal nightmare. What happens if you take the wrong road? And what if all the dead famous rockers lived in a small town named Rock and Roll Heaven for all eternity? King smashes these two concepts together and puts his own delicious spin on it. It's just a fun, nasty little story. First you feel for the main character, Mary, whose moronic husband, Clark, keeps pushing their Mercedes deeper and deeper into the woods while lost. While they crest the hill and glimpse Rock and Roll Heaven, she's immediately weirded out, as she should be. There's no logical explanation for a perfect small town in the middle of nowhere like this, and Veronica Clark keeps pushing them forward. King does a wonderful job at increasing the dread, from the nervous waitress who scrawls the note, get out while you still can, to Mary's realization that the other waitress didn't just look like Janis Joplin, but actually was Janis Joplin. And we see Ricky Nelson and Roy Orbison, Buddy Holly, and then the impossible becomes reality. These really are the dead rockers. And Mary tries to keep it together despite her growing fear. Buddy Holly starts talking to her and a drop of blood leaks out of his eye to make things that much worse. And then when Janis Joplin opens her mouth and a flood of maggots fall to the floor, the nightmare is on. So everything from that point forward is just sheer horror. And it's just a, a great, I don't know, it's just a great take on the afterlife. So yeah, maybe they are dead. Maybe they did die and this is their... Oh, this is their afterlife, which is just terrifying. It's just a horrifying concept that I think is so much fun. So our Stephen Kingisms here. Uh, a couple winding up in the worst town possible, as seen before in the short story Children of the Corn. And I think that it would have been fun if these were the actual two characters from Children of the Corn. I know that they died in Children of the Corn, but... I just think it'd be fun if King just wrote a series of short stories with these two characters who are constantly kind of getting on each other's nerves and bickering at each other, winding up in the worst towns possible and being punished for it. And Elvis. Uh, this is now the second time we've seen a depiction of Elvis in, in um, a Stephen King horror selection. The first one, the King was two-timing on the housewives of the Castle Rock citizens in Needful Things. Up next, we have Rainy Season. 
A young husband and wife on a summer vacation rent a house in a small town called Willow, Maine, only to be warned repeatedly, if vaguely, to leave by local inhabitants. They do not comply, and having purchased groceries, return to the house. They never learn the price for prosperity the citizens of Willow must pay. Every seven years, a husband and wife will go there from outside and will stay, despite protests, to become sacrifices during the rainy season. When the rain starts, the couple learns the nature of the precipitation. An army of grotesque black toads the size of footballs, armed with needle-sharp teeth and able to chew through doors and walls. So my analysis of all the stories I could talk about that um, I don't talk about in this review, I honestly don't know why I chose Rainy Season. But I kind of had to talk about it. It's just so bizarre that I can't help but love it. A town that rains evil razor-toothed frogs? What's not to like about it? And there's really not much more to talk about. I mean, the concept itself is that's the, I mean, that's the best part of this. It's just, it's just so wacky and wonderful. And up next we have Sorry, Right Number. Katie Weiderman is, Weiderman is talking to her sister on the phone one night. Her husband, Bill, is in his study trying to find inspiration for a new novel. Her children are arguing about whether or not to watch Ghost's Kiss, a gory TV adaptation of Bill's earlier novel. Kate receives a second phone call. The incoming call is sobbing, is a sobbing and traumatized caller who sputters, take, please, take, before the line goes dead. Katie immediately assumes the call came from her daughter, Polly, who is away at boarding school, but a call to Polly proves otherwise. Katie also rules out her mother, but she but she cannot reach her, reach her sister Dawn. Katie and Bill rush over to Dawn's house despite the appearance of a forced entry. Dawn is all right and did not call. Assuming that someone must have dialed the wrong number, Katie forgets about the call. Later that night, Bill suffers a fatal heart attack. Five years pass. Katie has remarried, but she still misses Bill. On the anniversary of Bill's death, Katie is in Bill's old office, and she finds an old VHS tape of Ghost's Kiss. She puts it into the player. She is immediately overcome with grief as she recalls the events of five years past. She grabs the phone and dials her old phone number. She is startled when the phone is answered by herself five years previously. She tries to warn her younger self of the tragedy that is about to happen and tries to say, Take him to the hospital. If you want him to live, take him to the hospital. In her state of shock, she is only able to say, Take, please, take, before the line goes dead. She realizes the truth of what happened that night and breaks down sobbing over her lost opportunity. Now, there's not much to say about this story other than it's completely heartbreaking. It's well-written, and it stands out from the rest of the short stories due to its existence as a teleplay. I just remember first reading it and coming to the ending, which just hit me like a sledgehammer. And then like like the rainy day um, or the rainy season uh, review, there's really not much to talk about. It's just one that should be experienced. Uh, I just think that it's very, very well done. And up next, we have Crouch End. On August 9th, 1974, two police officers, alcoholic veteran Ted Vetter and newcomer Robert Farnham, are working the night shift in the London neighborhood of Crouch End. They are discussing the case of Doris Freeman, a young American woman who came in to report the disappearance of her husband, lawyer Leonard Freeman. Nearly hysterical, Doris talks of monsters and supernatural incidents. 
She relates how she and her husband were looking for a potential employer's house in Crouch End, but as they did so, they became lost. As they continued searching, their surroundings started to change subtly and became infested by what appeared to be monsters and demons. Doris escapes with her life, but her husband is not so lucky, being consumed by some kind of hideous creature, implied to be the Lovecraftian creature Shub Nijereth, due to a reference to the black goat with a thousand young made shortly before the creature's appearance. Farnham dismisses the story as rubbish, but Vetter, who has worked in Crouch End for years, is not so sure, remembering a time previously when similar events happened. He speaks of different dimensions and Crouch End being a place where the veil between our world and another more demonic world is at its weakest. The story ends with Farnham going out into the night, only to find that something is different about the area for him too. He has never seen again, and Vetter dies a few years later. The story ends by saying that people continue to disappear and crouch end and sometimes are never seen again. Like I've said before, one of King's biggest sources of inspiration is H.P. Lovecraft. He's played with the Lovecraftian techniques as far back as Jerusalem's lot in Night Shift and has incorporated elements into his stories, for instance, suggesting that Flag was a Lovecraftian creature in the stand, making the book of spells that Flag had in Eyes of the Dragon be the Necronomicon by the fact that Al-Hazred has written it, references to Lang and Yogg-Shothoth in Needful Things. Again, in Crouch End, he plunges two unsuspecting characters into the world of Lovecraft. It's terrifying and alien, and it's very unlike what King normally writes. Remember that King excels in character work, and that includes his villains. H.P. Lovecraft was different, and because of that, if King is working with a Lovecraftian style, then he has to replace the character work that he's known for with the alien, the inscrutable. The characters in Crouch End are plunged into a surreal, maddening nightmare that fits right in with what Lovecraft had concocted in his numerous stories. All right, guys, um, so that's all I've got for Nightmares and Dreamscapes, the 1990s uh, short story collection. The next short story collection that we will get to will be Everything's Eventual in the 2000s. So thanks for sticking with me for another week, and make sure that you stick around next week for my review of the adaptation of The Night Flyer starring Miguel Ferrar. And if you have not done so already, feel free to head on over to iTunes and write a review and subscribe through iTunes because a subscription and a review through iTunes helps uh, promote Stephen King cast just a little bit. So that would be greatly appreciated. And everyone, uh, thanks for sticking around. I will see you here next week when I review the Night Flyer. Same King time, same King channel. What are you going to say? Same King time, same King channel. <laughs> Stephen King cast. Here, here.